0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, this is part 11 in the Mark series, going verse by verse through the entire gospel of Mark. And I'm going to give you a little preview on some of the things we're going to cover today, although this isn't all of it, because we're covering really Mark chapter 3, verse 7, I think through 19 is where we'll end up um, today. But we're going to be covering um, why the 12 apostles, like why... If you ever think about this, like, why 12 apostles? What was so special about these guys? Why were they selected? What was the strategy that God had in mind for them? Because they were important for a first century work, but they were also important for, and this is kind of neat for apologetics, for the historical evidence for not only the existence of Jesus, but also his resurrection. And the apostles played an important role in not only establishing the church, but in helping secure that the evidence was there for later generations to have. And it's just, it's brilliant how God did it and I want us to appreciate it. Also, we'll do more stuff. Um, For instance, we'll talk about um, how people then and now are so confused about Jesus, even being confronted with the uniqueness of Jesus, recognizing something's amazing about Jesus, but just not getting it. And I mean, this is like our constant experience, as Christians interacting with people, is it's like they, they respect Jesus often. They look up to Jesus. They even think Jesus is even like the Son of God, but they still don't get the gospel. They don't get why Jesus. They don't get what he came for. So they love something about him, but they don't know what it is. And uh, we're going to talk about that because they were experiencing the same stuff in the Gospels in a Jewish context as we're experiencing today in the, uh, the more Gentile context more frequently. So um, let's just read through the passage. Mark 3, verse 7 through 19. We're going to read the whole passage and then we're going to go back over it verse by verse. So I just meant to load it in our minds so that it's the Bible we're studying and it's not just me we're hearing as I share my thoughts. So Mark 3 7 Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. He told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him for he had Uh, For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, excuse me, appointed twelve. They will be called the twelve later, but he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so here's the big picture that we, in the survey we just did through that text. There's crowd issues, and in my opinion, those crowd, those issues with the crowd, too many people cramming around Jesus, it's causing him to change his ministry strategy. He's like, have a boat ready for me, these kinds of things. And so those crowd issues shift things, and that's around the same time as he seems to call the 12. So I think he's calling the 12 partially in response to the crowd issues, it helps us understand why they're being called. Now you're like, well, they were already known. In fact, we've read earlier about Peter already being with Jesus. Yes, they were disciples of Christ. They were followers of Jesus, but they weren't part of this select group called the 12 because there wasn't such a select group. At some point, not at the very beginning, but at some point in Jesus's ministry here, he is uh, grabbing these people and they're going to be the 12. And they're known historically as the 12. Like there was never another group like this. There's just these 12 guys. All right, Mark 3 verse 7. Let's go through this verse by verse and see what we can learn. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. That would be the Sea of Galilee. And um, just so we know, we're on the same page here. It's it's more, you would think of it more as a large lake. If you went there and you saw it, you'd be like, this is not a sea. Well, it, it is in their term, Thalassa, right? Like it's Greek, it's not even English. So yeah, it is, that's the right word they're using for it. But we're often thinking of like these big oceans or something. It's It's actually probably a large lake or... More, more than probably, it just is a large lake. Sea of Galilee is the second lowest point on earth you can get, um, uh, other than going under the ocean itself. The other one is the Dead Sea. So it's like, it's, it's below sea level. It's this really interesting um, uh, dynamic for growing food, catching fish and all that. Well, there they are. He withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and also from Judea. And we get this long list of a bunch of other places too. From Jerusalem, from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Now this word withdrew in verse 7 is interesting. It implies that, I think, it implies that Jesus is like, he's, he's not just, I have somewhere to go. It's more like, I have something to get away from. Because right? if you're on your way somewhere, you're not like, I'm going to withdraw to work. Like if any of you, you withdraw to work, it's because things aren't so good at home. Like that's, that's why, like if I'm withdrawing to work. Like when I say I withdrew, it's in response to what's in this place. Jesus, it seems, is getting away from um, the, the problem that we just read about in verse 6, where after Sabbath controversies, they've decided to plot against Jesus to kill him. And so this group of Pharisees plots with the Herodians, these sort of Jewish-ish group of people we'll talk about at a later time in our studies. And Then he withdraws so he's getting away from them, but then yet there's another problem with the crowds with the crowds So this seems like a strategic thing, but it's going to lead us to the crowd issue um, But first we'll just notice where these people are coming from Judea Judea is like a whole region in like southern Israel This is the focus of Judea Jerusalem, which is like a city in Israel. You may have heard of it, right? but it's the it's the capital of Israel It was at the time and um, and and is now I do believe I'm not really sure what the what the political debate on that is at the moment but I thought they anyway they say it's their capital it's whether everybody else says it is I don't know Um, then Idumea, which is further south beyond Jerusalem further south and beyond the Jordan that would be to the east so the Galilee we're going south of Galilee more south of Galilee now we're to the east which is beyond the Jordan River and then areas around Tyre and Sidon which is referring to a north a northern area and so the idea is they're just coming from all around People are coming from all around to see Jesus. This could be a result simply because of uh, what Jesus has done in Galilee or if we combine the Gospels together we see that Jesus actually made multiple trips to Jerusalem and even other locations even though sort of the headquarters was Galilee. And so he went for feast days. He went down to Jerusalem. That was his normal routine. And what happens on the feast days in Jerusalem, it is brilliant how God set it up. He would say, I want all the Jewish people to come to Jerusalem for these particular days. Jesus would come and there he would teach and heal and cause commotion. And then those people would all go back to their homes in, I don't know, Idumea, I don't know, maybe beyond the Jordan or, you know, these Tyre and Sidon, like these various locations, they would head off and then they're carrying with them the stories of what happened at Passover. And so people are hearing about him and then they know he's from Galilee. And so that may have really contributed to the number of people coming to see who he was and what was going on. Um, Healings will draw crowds, especially real ones. I mean, fake ones draw crowds too. <laughs> but but uh, especially when they're real ones and you're like, no, it's, it's me, look. And you, you see those and God does truly heal. So, verse 9, we read, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. Um, this is not necessarily a crowd of disciples, I think we need to know. The crowds following Jesus weren't necessarily a crowd of people following Jesus, if you get my drift. They weren't really following him. They were sort of trying to follow wherever he went to get what they wanted from him. Miracles, like I said, they do draw crowds, but they don't necessarily make disciples. Disciples happen amongst that crowd, but the crowd is not necessarily disciples and I will add they're not necessarily even safe for Jesus. And so we get this is where he's doing this crowd management stuff. They're not necessarily safe. Um, The crowds are a mixed bag. It's good because it's good for getting the message out, but it's, well, and it's also good for just changing lives because as a lot of people come to, you know, your gathering or your church thing or whatever the reason is why the crowd gathers, it's great because it's getting the word out to more people. It's also great because some of those people will have their lives changed, but they can be a bad thing too because the crowd can lead you instead of you leading the crowd. And this is, I think, some of the battles people have doing ministry, not only nowadays, but probably throughout time. Are we leading the crowd or is the crowd leading us? What will draw the crowd? I'll do that. Or do I make disciples and then see if the crowd shows up kind of thing? How do I handle that? Or is there some middle ground of wisdom that's there? I don't know. But the crowd can be a bad thing because the crowd, they want things. They desire things and those things aren't necessarily the things of God. They might want healing, but I mean everybody wants healing. That's not like a Christian desire. And so that can be problematic as it draws the crowd. They want to see things. But they also have bad and wrong expectations of Jesus. Even in the midst of him doing these miracles, they're like thinking, he's going he's gonna to heal all of us. He's going to throw off Rome. He's going to give us the kingdom and he's going to do it right now because we think, we're starting to think he's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one. But they don't know what the one even is. They're confused about what his calling is. And so the crowd, at some points, they can actually try to take him. At one point they do. They try to take him by force and make him king. And he's just like, whoop, and he just slips out of the crowd. Because at that point, they were very dangerous. Dangerous to the mission, dangerous to the agenda. And so following the crowd, Jesus is giving a good example. Do, yeah, do the work of God such that hopefully that crowd starts following you. But don't follow the crowd. You have to, Then you have to deal with the na- navigating the issues of the crowd. Interesting. Um, they had confusions, the crowd, about um, tradition versus biblical faith, um, as so many do today. Their ideas of, they think, it's funny to me, how people who only know like two Bible verses, they know exactly what Christianity is. You you find this? That there's like, well, I just know John 3.16. You know, God helps those who help themselves. And that's the only verse I know. (laughs) But I can tell you what a real Christian is. And I can tell you how real Christians should act and how real pastors should behave and what real churches should look like. And... Perhaps, you you know, you're dealing with some of this stuff when you're dealing with with individuals. This confusion about their traditions versus what's like a biblical actual actual accurate faith. Um, But do they understand? Um, No. They don't realize that his miracles are meant to demonstrate who he is and that who he is is the one who's going to die for their sin. And that their biggest issue, the biggest thing they need healing from is their sin and their broken relationship with God because of their broken lives. But that that's the big thing and that's the thing they will find insulting, many of them, when they figure out that that's the message. And this is just like today. I feel like the first century is the 21st century in many ways. The parallels are there if you can see the Jewish issues and relate them to the issues that we're facing right now. So a lot of people today, they do this, they chase the, the, the O and ministries take advantage of this, especially in the social media culture that we have. If we can create an O will not only gather people from our local community, we'll get people traveling from around the world to come over and see us because now we can spread that, the O around the world. And um, I grew up seeing a lot of this kind of kind of stuff and so did you. And at the same time, you go to a church that has like, I don't know, if I go to a church that has like 50,000 people, I'm just like, who am I? <laughs> who am I here? Like, you need to find the church within the church even if even if that's a good church to be at. It just ends up being a crowd and not a place for discipleship for you and growth in the body of Christ sometimes. Um, so they can chase what they, what they like, the miracles, healing, that kind of thing, or big, fun music, and a really comedic pastor who's just, man, that guy, I, I just, I don't even, I'm not a Christian, I just like listening to him talk. I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just not the thing, right? Like that's just, that just can't be, that's just like a nice coincidence. Great, people just like listening to you talk, but this cannot be your ministry. Like your ministry is making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's got to be the thing. But some people, they don't see the gospel. They see what they want, but they don't see the gospel message itself. Same issue they faced back then. Second Corinthians 5.19, I like how it summarizes the gospel. It gives you a piece of it right here. It says, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And I love that word reconciliation. Like, I'm going to make you right with God. That's Jesus, right? He, Jesus, he's going to make you right with God. Well, I just came here for food. I just came for for healing. I just came because I'm feeling kind of down. I need a little pick-me-up. But you're like settling for crumbs when he has a feast prepared for you. But I don't want that feast. Okay, well, that's the spiritual issue. You know, that's what we need. We need that new life that we get through Christ. And that's what they needed and they didn't quite know it. And they'll discover it as we read through Mark. They get more and more clues, more and more hints, as Jesus tries to undo their wrong understanding and show them who he really is. All right, so verse 10, it says, And he healed many, for excuse me, before he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And that word pressed around, even in the Greek, it just means like, like a forceful kind of thing. It feels like that in English too, right? Like they pressed around. So there's like physically pressing, trying to push through to get a hold of him. If nothing else, at this point, the crowds are too much, I think. I think the crowds too much. There's these massive crowds are coming from all over the place. They're urgent to get healing. He really is healing people. And so they're trying to push through. Now the the implication here to me is that he's not actually healing every single human being that shows up because there's people who are still trying to press to get to him. I think that's implied. I don't think it's clear in the text, but it seems implied. But it seems like it's too much. In verse eleven, it goes on whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And you think this was a good thing. You think this was a, a positive thing. I mean, it is in a sense, right? Because it's like, well, look, even the demons are saying who Jesus is. But verse 12, he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Do not say it. So he's, he's just, tells them, be quiet, be silenced. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. And specifically, don't tell who I am. Now, some scholars... Welcome to the World of Scholarship. And if you guys like reading lots of commentaries, you never know what you're going to pick up with a new commentary, where they're coming from. Well, some commentaries would even say something like this, that when the demon said, you are the Son of God, this was this belief of the time that, you know, if you could, if you could use someone's title, you could get power over them spiritually. And so they're using Jesus' title to try to get power over him. And the interesting thing here is, um, first off, I don't really think there's any, any like moment in the New Testament where a demon seems to think he's going to get power over Jesus. Like they fall down. They're like, oh, you're the son of God. They're just confessing who he is. They're shocked, perhaps. They're, they're confronted with the presence of, of, uh, of Christ. And so this confession comes out. Interestingly enough, in the future, every tongue will confess. And when every tongue is confessing, it will not be that they might get power over Christ. It will be a confession, an admission of the truth of who he is. But there's a few things against this. Um, for one, it didn't do anything. If Mark's trying to show them, trying to get power, and there's like a struggle going, there's no struggle in the text. Jesus is like, yeah, shut up. Like, like, there's just no power struggle going on here whatsoever. Another thing is that verse 12 reveals what was really happening here. Jesus forbids them to speak, not because they're going to get power over him or some nonsense. He forbids them to speak because he doesn't want other people to overhear them and know who he is. Or at least to hear it from a demon. So he either doesn't want them to know it, or he doesn't want them to know it from that source. I don't want them to be your source. One of those two things, verse 12, right? He earnestly wanted them not to tell who he was, not just not to speak, but don't declare who I am specifically. Don't, don't tell. It's not just don't say who I am, don't tell who I am. Don't let other people know that thing. Um, this is not a confession of faith. This isn't like demons who believe and go to heaven. This is rather like James 2.19 says, the demons believe and tremble. So, yeah, they conf- they're confessing, but not a confession of faith and trust in Christ. Rather, it's just the reality of them knowing the truth. So, they know. Um, they know who Jesus is. Jesus knows who Jesus is, but he won't tell everyone yet. And I, I've dealt with this actually, this concept already in this Mark series. You guys remember in part seven of the Mark series, I think the title of the video is Why Was, uh, Why Was Jesus So Secretive? And that's what I titled it. The idea is we go through all this stuff. Um, so, I'll, I'll go through through that concept in that video. Why is it he didn't want to reveal everything about him right away? But, um, but I'll say this. Even knowing Jesus' power, the, those who did hear it, those who understood he was the Son of God, even knowing about this about him, they didn't understand the gospel. So it's not like he's hard, hardening them or you know, keeping them from hearing anything about the message of the cross. It's not even understood by anybody yet. The disciples themselves don't get it yet because it hasn't happened yet. But the more people that hear demons say, you're the son of God, the more likely they are to try to grab him as a crowd and force him to be king. And it's going to make the problems worse instead of better. So he's just laying the foundation for the work of the ministry that will be fulfilled by the disciples, the 12 apostles, who are going to come out after the cross and reap what what Jesus is planting right now. So um, Jesus here. What I think he's doing with his whole ministry, if you zoom out in Mark, and we see a, th- a theme through Mark, when people, you know, some scholars like to talk about the, the, um, the mysteriousness, the, this, the Mark secret, the secret in the Gospels, about all this stuff. I think that sometimes they get a little off base though. I think what Jesus is doing is he's simultaneously fulfilling the Old Testament, and that's neat, as you see that woven throughout the New Testament, but he's also fixing their wrong expectations. So in one sense, on one hand, Jesus is like, yeah, that's me. I'm the one who's coming. And on the other hand, he's like, and you got it wrong. Like, you don't even know who's coming. You know I'm coming, but you don't know who I am. You know I'm on my way, but you don't know what I'm doing. And so he's dealing, he's juggling with this constant misperceptions to sort of give the right understanding of who he is. That's why he's controlling how things go. One of the big reasons. Now, the crowd interactions are really interesting here. Um, not just in this passage, but in, in Mark, and in the Gospels, when we read about Jesus and his travels. There's times where de- Jesus ditches the crowd. He's like got a big crowd following him, and he just leaves. Now, I don't know I- very many ministry leaders who would do this. Like, can you imagine? Like, there's this big crowd following, you and you're like, time to go? <laughs> I'm out. No, you'd be like, I just have to stay up all night and all day, and i be here until everyone leaves. And that's like, you, you can't leave, man. It's the crowd. You got to be here for the people. I get that heart and that's my I tend that way myself but Jesus doesn't do that. Sometimes anyways, he just ditches the crowd. There's one time where he goes to Passover late so he can sneak in without being noticed. At least noticed by some people. He's later found teaching in the temple. So he has his goal, he does get in front of a crowd but not not everybody and not in this big magnanimous way all the time. There's times where Jesus actually fights against the crowd or against the existence of a crowd cuz he purposely shrinks it. John 6 is one of the examples of this where he gives them a really hard teaching. He doesn't explain. He knows it's going to offend them and he just uses it as an opportunity to find out who's going to really follow him. And it says in John 6 verse 66 that many people leave him as a result of this. And they're like, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. (laughs) Like they're trying to tell him like, Pastor, if you taught, you you know, on Sunday you taught that people are going to leave. The crowd's going to shrink. But Jesus, in this case, did it on purpose. And this doesn't justify pastors just getting up and being mean from the pulpit and abusing their position and then saying, well, Jesus shrunk the crowd, I'm shrinking the crowd too. I'm not, I'm not excusing like this blanket, shrink the crowd whenever you want. (laughs) Like, that's not what we're saying. But it's interesting to know that this did happen with Jesus and that there was a time for it. And so, you know, may the Lord guide us if that, if there comes a time where this needs to happen for our lives or our churches even. So I think the life application for those who serve in ministry is don't rush it. Don't rush it. We want growth. Especially like guys, you're like, you know, when you're young and you're, you're like, well, Greg Laurie became, you know, he became an evangelist when he was 19. And then you're like, I'm already 23. I'm like way behind. You know, you know I'm, I'm already like, oh, I'm 18. I better, I better start, I better get ordained right away. And we, we compare ourselves to the stories of other people. I'll be like, well, Jesus didn't even start ministry till he was 30. Oh man, Greg Laurie's way better. Yeah. Or God's timing is different than, you know, in one person's life than another person's life. And my thought is, don't rush it. Don't rush it. And know that with ministry, growth of the numbers is not the central goal. And yet it becomes the goal, especially in certain structures, church structures, where that's like they're every every day. Every Sunday, they're counting how many people go, and they're counting what the donations are. And this becomes the driving force behind the teaching sometimes. And that can be, that can hinder ministry. It can really hinder ministry. I'm not saying that you never think about those things, but they can be unbalanced. So, don't rush it. First, be there for the Lord. And second, Jesus was there for the people, but he wasn't there for the crowds. And there's a difference. Be there for people, but don't be there for crowds. The moment you're there for crowds, it's going to be a problem. You're going you're to change to suit those who are not committed disciples of Christ. And those who will will openly reject the gospel, and you're shifting your ministry to fit that crowd, and, you're, and the people in your ministry will not be discipled. They won't grow. They'll sit in there like I'm stagnant. I don't grow. There's nothing for me. But my my buddy who rejects the Bible rejects Jesus. He likes it here, so I guess that's okay. And I'm like, yeah, be there for people, but not for crowds, so to speak. Um, now this seems to lead for what happens and lead to the need that is solved by the twelve or at least helped by the existence of the twelve as the select group going to be used by Jesus so let's, let's read about it now in verse 13 we're going to spend the rest of the study talking about the twelve disciples um, and reading, reading a list and discussing it I think lists are interesting if you spend some time on them you can find some rewarding content there so he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted him, or he himself wanted and they came to him um, Luke chapter 6 verse 11 adds that he prayed all night before he summoned them, before he got brought them to himself. So, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons and he appointed the 12. And I'll just read through their names again, because you know you can't remember all the names of the disciples anyway, so it's good to hear them again. So, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the first question is this, why the twelve? Like what's special about the twelve? Um, the first thing I'll say is, well, we're, we're not all the twelve. And there weren't twelve throughout the generations of mankind. There were these twelve. They were chosen. If you, if, I'm going to take my understanding of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter one, we read how Judas is dead. And they bring a Matthias to replace him as one of the twelve. This, the twelve, were, are, they're called sometimes the twelve apostles. Sometimes the twelve disciples. Sometimes just The twelve but it's the uniqueness of just this group of people. That's the idea. Um, They travel out two by two when they do their tasks. So so each of them would have had at least one partner in this list, which is interesting to think about. And I don't see any replacements in the book of Acts. You don't hear after, you know, the death of so-and-so, so-and-so was brought in to replace them later on. It's just, no, no, this was a select group of people. They had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus. They had to live and walk with Jesus. Um, So Paul is is, is like an exception or an additional one. They were called to minister to to Israel in particular. Paul was called as the apostle to the Gentiles. We don't have anyone else replacing him in that calling afterwards either that we know about in Scripture. So these are unique first century, you know, time of Christ like roles. So if you happen to go to a church and one of your leaders there says they're one of the 12, the modern 12, it means you're Mormon, and there, there's a, because that's not biblical, right? They do have a quorum of the twelve, right? They think that this continues in their, in their, uh, in their group. Um, they had a special calling, a special ministry. We're not them, and when you read about instructions to them, they're not necessarily instructions to you, but you can learn from them, and I do think that's, we're supposed to. <clears throat> so they're called for three reasons. One, to be with him. And I can make a parallel. You have to be with Jesus in your life. And that's true. But first, let's just apply it to them, right? They had to physically be with Jesus. He's like, hey, the 12, you need to be with me all the time. You have to just be with me. This is what it says when uh, when the text here tells us why he called them. Verse 14, so that they would be with him. So they had to physically be with him. This is to be trained. So the first thing they had to do, there's like three things. The first thing is they had to be trained, uh, be with him so they could be trained. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. It means he travels around preaching A lot of the same content. He has a message he brings to Capernaum. He has a message he brings to Bethsaida. He has a message he brings over here and over there and over there and over there and he shares it again and he adjusts his parable for the audience and what the question that was asked or something. So he would have taught the same kind of content over and over again. And if you were one of those who was with him constantly, can you imagine how many times you heard these parables and in how many different forms? How much you heard Jesus teach? If you think he taught the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I wonder how many times he taught it and in how many places. It's not like Jesus just said things once. In fact, good teachers do repeat themselves. And so, um, especially the way he formats his stuff in stories. Like, did you know, like, in in the Beatitudes, like, in the the Greek, it actually rhymes? There's a rhyming thing going on in the Beatitudes, like, blessed are the poor and all this. There's actually a rhyme going on because Jesus is like, I want you to remember what I say. It teaches them stories. You you may not be able to quote everything in um, Galatians chapter 3, but you can remember like the parable of the sower. You know, this is meant to be remembered. And so for years, they're traveling with Jesus, hearing him teach this stuff over and over again, direct teachings, parables, uh, various versions of the the things Jesus taught probably. Um, And they're seeing Jesus react to situations. And that's something, man, I I wish I could see. I wish I could see how Jesus reacted like on his face when they called him something, a name, or when he had a frustrating, potentially frustrating moment, how he responded. Because I've know, I have know it's been a huge blessing in my life when I went from having a largely non-Christian experience in life and the people I knew and grew up with and at home and stuff, when I met some godly men and I just saw the way they reacted to the world around them. Like they're driving in traffic and someone cut them off and I'd be like, look at them like, oh, that was different. They, they, didn't, they didn't react the way I was, you know, I'm used to seeing, you know. <laughs> And I, I see someone, someone hurts them, someone wounds them, someone lies about them and I see them react with like grace, kindness and it, it becomes a model for me to follow. It is really important that we see some people, some people in your life you can attach yourself to who can be godly. Examples, without even words, they just change your life and um, that is a big deal. And so they are with him, they get to see his reactions and, um, and learn from him and two, the second reason that he could send them out, that he could send them out And it's interesting here because he calls them apostles, he calls them apostles, and and he says he's appointed them to send them out. Well, that word send out is from the same word as apostle in the Greek, apostolo, I send out. Apostolo means I send out, and different forms of that same word is the same word for, he calls them apostles, or ones who are sent out. That's what that means. So that's pretty interesting. Um, so their main one of their main goals the 12 apostles is they're going to go out and preach the message. They're going to go out and spread the word. Learn from Jesus and then spread the message. This answers a problem with the crowd, I think. The crowds are cramming around. There's more people than there is the ability of Jesus to speak to that large of a crowd. So now I have 12 people I'm training these guys and they're going to help spread the message. So this helps answer the crowd. Um, he does this once before the cross. Then he does it in uh, the book of Acts, again, uh, what I'm talking about is before the cross he sends them out two by two, and we'll read about this later, and the apostles go out two by two, so there's six groups, and they go out into different towns and villages, and they're preaching what they've learned from Jesus. This is great for embedding in their minds and memories the words of Jesus, because now they've got two guys who've been traveling with Jesus, then they're supposed to repeat what he says to this new city. If one of them gets it wrong, the other one's like, no, 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 no that's not how it goes. You know, and they're correcting and they're learning. And then when they come back, they're like, wait, Jesus, we were, we were like, we couldn't remember. Like, what was the fourth soil again? You know, like they're able to like check with Christ to learn his teaching better. Later, after, after Jesus, uh, plus in John, he promises and the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that he says. So they've got the divine inspiration of scripture or of the spirit um, to help them recall the things Jesus said. But in Acts, they go out again. In Acts, though, it's after the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Then they start preaching and sharing the truth of Christ and they keep doing it until they die, securing the accurate truth of Jesus. And these guys were what are called guarantors of the tradition. This is the terminology scholars use: guarantors of the tradition. They were the people who made sure that other people didn't change what Jesus said. And they were, and they lived, and they continued to live for a decent amount of time. People like to say that they all died by they were by the time they were forty back then, and that's just not factually true. Uh, just go look up the age of Roman rulers if you'd like to see. They don't all die when they're 40. Um, at any rate, uh, this, is, this is brilliant because it not only helps deal with crowds, but it creates a situation in the first century where the message and the, the information about Jesus and what he teaches is secured by these 12 individuals who are authoritatively in a position to be the guarantors of the accurate teachings of Jesus. So that now, when we get our our New Testament Gospels that traced all to the first century, to the time when at least some of these guys were still alive, guaranteeing the accuracy of information. It just moves a long way against like what they were saying for a couple hundred years there in the 1700s. They were saying that this stuff is just all tradition. It's all been fabricated. It's all been changed and made up. And we see not only from the text, but also from uh, a study of history itself, that this is not the case that the words of Jesus were preserved. So anyways, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And then finally, number three, the third thing he does is he has them uh, come to him for is to have authority to cast out the demons. Authority to cast out the demons. And notice the wording here in verses 14 and 15. Uh, and he appointed them, the twelve, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Jesus appoints them to have authority to cast out demons I want you to understand this is saying something unique about Jesus not so much about the 12 Jesus not only can cast out demons we already know that in Mark he has the authority to tell someone else and now you can too think about that for a second as those who try to say that Mark doesn't think Jesus is really you know like God with us or that um, that Jesus' view of himself is, is, is a low Christology in Mark this is you know this is the apologetic side of things As we read here, he has the authority to to tell others, yeah, you can cast out demons. Who is it that can not only cast out demons, but appoint others with authority to do it themselves? Yeah, Jesus. But who does that make Jesus? You know, that's the thing. Um, So now again, I'll admit we're not the 12. We're not the 12. We're not necessarily trying to copy everything they do, but we are ambassadors for Christ, and so we can learn from them. We should preserve the things Jesus said and not add to or take away from it. We should share it with others, and we should try to address the real spiritual needs that they have. Um, Absolutely. Now, the New Testament has four lists of the 12 apostles, and they do not all agree about the names of the apostles, and I want to talk about that for a minute. In Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4, like Matthew 10, that's one list right there. In Luke chapter 6, Luke 6, verse 13 through 16. That's another list right there. And then another one is in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, also written by Luke. Um, so in Acts 1, 13, and then we have the place here in Mark chapter 3. There's, what's interesting though, before we get into dissimilarities, is is the similarities. There's, there's always 12. There's never 15 or 27 or something like that. Like there's always just the 12. And they're always arranged in a certain way. There's always four groups of, of, um, uh, Oh wait, is it four groups? Three groups of four. Excuse me. I was like wait that math doesn't work. It's three groups of four guys. Three groups of four guys, and at the head of each of those groups is always the same guy. So like Peter is always the first of the four names. So you have the same guys at the head in all of the lists across the text. The other guys underneath the first one in that group of four, their names can move around in the list. That's just an interesting thing. It may be that this was part of the organizational structure that Jesus had for them. We know he set them out two by two. It may also be that there was groups of four going on. Now, let's talk about discrepancies in the list. Uh, Some scholars say that the differences in the names of the apostles across these four different lists mean that the real names of the apostles were just forgotten, which is a big claim. Like, how do we know that what they said is what they said if we don't even know what their names were at this point? And they say, well, their names were forgotten and the Gospels are therefore unreliable. Uh, but what they often won't say is that they agree on 11 of the 12. 11 of the 12 names are agreed on. And Sometimes they just won't tell you this information. So in these lists, 11 of the 12 are agreed on. It's just again the different order, but we still see the structure. Why are all, why are the top names always, these four guys are always right where they are in the list. Um, So let's talk about the one that's different, and that's Thaddeus. Thaddeus we read about in Mark, as well as in Matthew, and instead of Thaddeus, we have in Luke and Acts, we have Judas, the son of James. Judas, the son of James. Now, knowing as much as you do, even going just through the Mark series, you probably already know how to resolve this issue. (laughs) We've talked about names, actually, in the first in the series on Mark, and how names often worked back then. But we'll, uh, we'll, try, we'll talk about some possible solutions to this conundrum. Some suggest that Thaddeus was the original guy and he died or he left. He abandoned Christ. And Judas, the son of James, ended up taking over. And so one list has Thaddeus, another list has Judas, and it has to do with who took over, you know, a switching of, of uh, individuals. Uh, but then we have, we're challenged with the question like, why include a dropout in the list anyways? Why not just include who was there? Um... Plus, Judas, he, he dropped out, you know, but, but he's still included, you know, so you could say, oh, they, the dropouts are included, except Judas is essential for the story. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. He's always the last guy on the list, by the way. He's always number 12. Can you guess why? Um, yeah, meaning they did care about the order. Um, yeah. Also in John 17, Jesus speaks of Judas dropping out and he says, I have lost no one except the son of perdition. Speaking of Judas, so the, the implication is there isn't a Thaddeus that that he lost along the way it's Not ironclad, but it seems to be the implication So I think the better answer is that Judah uh, Thaddeus and this Judas Judas the son of James are the same guy I think that's the easiest understanding of it and I'll give you some really good evidence for it Which is this Judas is a Jewish name Judas it's a Jewish name Thaddeus is a Greek name one of the most common two-name Things You know people who have two names back then was they would have a Greek name and a Jewish name We get this all the time like especially uh, Koreans the Koreans that I've known Frequently have a Korean name and an English name. I had a friend His name was Kyung and I couldn't pronounce it right and I still probably can't pronounce it right and he was like Just call me John (laughs) You know (laughs) and um, and so everybody just called him John and I was like "Man, I really like pronouncing people's names right not that I do it I just like it but yes, that, that makes sense. Judas is Jewish. Thaddeus is Greek. It was not uncommon for Jews in, in Israel at that time to have a Greek and a Jewish name. And you can check out that for yourself in Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, page 100. Just in case you're interested. Um, also, there's two reasons to have a second name for this guy. One is, of course, you've got the Greek and the, the, the Jewish name. The other one is his name is Judas. I mean, really, his name is Judas. There's two reasons that go with this. One, you've got 12 guys, two of them are named Judas. When you have a cluster, a special in-group of people, and two of them have the same name, it's even in any culture, you just start calling one of them by a different name. That's just what you do. Like for me, my name is Mike. So all through school, there was always like two Mikes in a class, three Mikes in a class, 12 Mikes in a class. So I'd be like Mike W, or they just Winger, or something like this. They would just call me something different, right? Because it's not going to work. Well, they don't have a last name, you know. So they could say Judas, you know, son of James. That's one way of differentiating him from the other Judas. But another one is to just use his Greek name. Uh, Which is interesting is that Judas in John fourteen twenty two, this Judas, not the bad Judas, right? This Judas, he's referred to in John fourteen twenty two as Judas not Iscariot. <laughs> And you've read that before, right? And you're like, not Iscariot. And like, do you really think they always called him that? Hey, Judas, not Iscariot. Like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> this, is, this is like a later development, like after, you know, Iscariot, you know, let's make sure you're not, you don't get him confused. So we've got good reason why he would gravitate towards the, the Greek name and not the, not the Jewish name. Um, then there's one other possible discrepancy, and that is um, John. The Gospel of John doesn't have a list of the disciples' names, like the 12 all listed. He's the only gospel that doesn't do that. Uh, but he clearly believes in them. He refers to the 12 multiple times. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but he, um, he does offer some names. And so he'll mention, you know, this guy and this guy and this guy went with Jesus to do this thing. And we're like, yeah, those were part of the 12 for sure. And so he implies that there's a guy named Nathaniel who is one of the 12. It's implied in his text. He doesn't even use the word apostle, by the way. He just calls them the disciples. Um, interesting, just different way of writing. So John doesn't have the list. He mentions several by name. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, which is not in the lists that I shared with you earlier. Thomas, Judas, not Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, uh, the sons of Zebedee. He doesn't name them. We know they're James and John, but John seems to gravitate away from using his own name in his work. Uh, that's my opinion. And uh, then he talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we would also take to be probably John. Now, is it possible that Nathaniel and um, another one of these guys are the same person, it seems that it could be the case and the best candidate for it is Bartholomew because he's a name we never see in the Gospel of John, Bartholomew and so it's possible that, that they are um, the same. So here's like some four reasons that we can I think I have four reasons here, I'm looking at my notes that you can make that, uh, that conclusion. For one um, Bartholomew is never mentioned in John um, and while Nathaniel, according to John, is a, is a disciple, seems to be one of the twelve. Nathaniel—that name is never mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Acts. So it implies if the guy's there and he's named, he's being given a different name. Um, Bartholomew also, to help us with this, is not a person's name; it's a family name. It's a family name, not a person's name. It's Hebrew for son of Talmai. You're like, how does that work, <laughs> right? But just just take it, right? It's just Hebrew for son of Talmai, and. Um, and yeah, um, Bartholomew also, he always follows Philip in the lists that we get in the four lists. He always follows Philip. So there seems to be some connection with Philip potentially in these lists. And since some of those names would move around, they'd switch back and forth. This one doesn't, right? Bartholomew always follows Philip. Well, in John one forty five through 51, we read that Nathaniel is connected to Philip as well. Nathaniel is the one who gets Philip and brings him, or excuse me, Philip's the one who brings Nathaniel. Philip, remember the the one who's sitting under the tree and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he goes and sees Jesus and and he's like, oh, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And he's like, whoa, and he responds immediately with faith, right? He's immediately believing. Um, And so that was Nathaniel and Philip is the one who brought him. And so there may be a, there's obviously a connection between these two individuals. Seems to be a connection on the list between those two individuals as well. There is one early source though. This sounds really good and tight, right? But there's one early source, early first, uh, excuse me, second century source that challenges this and it says that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are two different apostles and they're both part of the 12 and that would break down at least this connection. Um, That is the Epistle of the Apostles, which is from about 150 to 175 AD. The Epistle of the Apostles is not in your Bible because it doesn't belong in your Bible. Um, There's a lot of, it's... Remember, it's from 150 to 175 AD, right? Yeah, it's not from the apostles. (laughs) Nobody was that old. And um, yeah, so here's the problem with, with people who like to quote things like this from church history. The epistle of the apostles also says that Cephas and Peter are two different apostles. Now, we know that's not true. We know that's not true because the first century texts tell us clearly that Cephas and Peter are the same guy and we have this from multiple sources, different writers, in our first century texts which are in our actual Bible and so my response to those who would say the epistle of the Apostles says Bartholomew and Nathan are not the same guy that they're two different apostles is that the epistle of the Apostles is junk and It gets Peter and Cephas wrong. Why would I trust it on Bartholomew and Nathaniel rather? They're just gathering names and and they've which they've obviously gotten from the New Testament probably and then they're trying to write something Um, so yeah So some people would say um, John doesn't really know about the 12 uh, because he has no list. It's like going to bother them and John doesn't have a list of the 12. Like that's so important. Um, but he does use, like I said, he uses the term the 12 three different times in John six sixty seven, John six seventy and 71, and then John twenty twenty four. And the 12 is also used in Acts and the 12 is used in 1 Corinthians. So we get it from John, we get it from Luke, and we get it from Paul, all using the 12. The historicity of, of the existence of the 12 is so, so solid. And now, again, we're in apologetics now, right? So I'm here and saying the existence of not just Jesus, but the 12 apostles is incredibly solid. One of the reasons is the early dating of 1 Corinthians 15. The creed in 1 Corinthians 15 goes back to probably within seven years of the death of Christ. That creed, and that creed includes a reference to the 12 and that Jesus appeared to the 12, meaning they were a known specific group of guys from immediately, uh, immediately after the resurrection, which implies that they were really, they were known during Jesus's time. He's, they're the twelve, they're his twelve. Also, the twelve don't have any stories about them later. We don't read later on about the twelve doing things even, really. Even late in the book of Acts, we're not reading about it. We're not reading about it happening. No, their main function was during the following Jesus. After that, they started doing different things because they're spreading the word. Also, there's the embarrassing presence of Judas Iscariot. Who makes that up? Jesus had this special group of twelve and one of them betrayed him to death. Like this isn't the story you write. It's considered embarrassing. It's considered insulting. But it just really happened that way. Also, there's multiple lists in different sources. This has caused E.P. Sanders, and by the way, if you ever research like the historicity of Jesus, whatever you read, E.P. Sanders comes up because he's one of the really, really like, um, like stand-up guys, when it comes to the the study of the historicity of Christ. And E.P. Sanders says that the Twelve existing as real historical people is among the almost indisputable facts of history. Meaning that if you, if you didn't even believe the inspiration of Scripture and you approach the Bible just as first-century documents, right, the New Testament, you would have to conclude that if we know anything about history, we know that the Twelve definitely were really a group of men following Jesus. Why is this important? Because the earliest thing we know about the Twelve is that they they claimed they saw Jesus alive from the dead. And from what we know from later reports and even in the book of Acts and the epistles is they were willing to suffer and die for that proclamation. Get around that. Get around that. Explain that. I, I, I think it's really interesting that skeptics who come against the resurrection of Christ most often will not even present an explanation for the evidence. What does that sound like to you? Right? You come to your kid's room. There's like water everywhere. Little pieces of water balloons everywhere. Your kid and their friend are in there and they're all wet. And you said, Look, son. I think you had a water balloon fight in your bedroom. You're in trouble. And your son says, Well, I carefully examined this bedroom scene. And I can tell you for sure it wasn't a water balloon fight. Well, then what do you think it was, son? Well, I don't have a theory. I'm not sure how to put the evidence together properly, but I know it wasn't a water balloon fight. And this is often what we get in the debate on the resurrection of Christ. It's kind of interesting how that happens. Um, They just don't even offer anything. In fact, uh, Bart Ehrman, who's one of the lead critics against uh, the resurrection of Christ, uh, among other things, he says to his students, don't offer a theory about what actually happened, because they'll just tear you apart. Just criticize the resurrection. Look, like if it doesn't work for your kid, it shouldn't work for a scholar. <laughs> that's that's my theory. Um, but there's even actually more evidence for this than I've even shared. Um, Richard Bacham's work on names confirms that the, the historicity of the 12, even the names of the 12 as well. Um, yeah. So by standard historical means, we have the 12 disciples as real guys. And I share this because the internet is enamored by Jesus mythicism. Enamored by it. And they think, no one knows this. I've discovered the truth, you know. And it's just utter nonsense. There is this big break between actual scholarship and the internet, thinking sometimes that they have scholarship. Good historical evidence puts you on a slow march to the literal, real resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So dig and don't use, you know, infidels.org as your source, please. Um. All right, so lists are kind of boring. But um, I, I would like to dig into this list a little bit of these, of these names. Um, again, I, I think lists are interesting when you dig into them and you really read them and thoughtfully, carefully study them. I'm not saying every list is exciting, but there is reward for it. So let's just dig in a little bit. And let's learn from this list. The first one on the, on the, on the list is Peter. Peter, the Apostle Peter. Um, I won't spend too much time on him because he's the one you already know the most about, right? And I'm not going to go through all that stuff that you know, but I will say this. Peter denied Jesus after saying he would die with Jesus. That's the short version, right? I will die with you, and then he denies Christ. Peter blew it big time, perhaps worse than anyone other than Judas. I don't say that lightly. I think he really did, and I think he felt it. And that's why when he, when he heard the, the rooster crow, it says he wept bitterly. Bitterly. It was made worse. His fall was made worse by his incredible confidence that he would die with Christ. I think his, his failure was just, he felt, he's like, I'm like kind of the lead guy, you know? And he failed so hard. But what's beautiful is Jesus restored him. Jesus restored him. He even knew of his failure when he called him. And he restored him. His name is first in all lists of the twelve, even after his failure in Acts chapter 1. He became the first to publicly preach the gospel to the Jews and the first to publicly preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Maybe you've blown it. My encouragement is, don't just weep bitter tears, although that's appropriate. And there's a, there is a good, there's a goodness in weeping bitter tears over your failings, especially moral failings, especially when you've, you know, really faltered in your walk with God that you thought, I wouldn't do that. That's a good thing. But get up, get humble, and start serving Jesus. Because I think he picked Peter as an example for you. In fact, I think he picked all these guys as an example. You can't fix the past any more than Peter could, and he would always live remembering those moments. But he can, you know, moving forward, you can change the future. And you can serve Jesus where you're at right now. Um, The second and third name on the list are James and John. And what's interesting about it is, um, is the name they get. But let's just read it. Verse 17, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Um, this is not the brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle James. There's different Jameses in the Bible. Um, This is John's brother. James and John, they're kind of a, 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 they come together frequently here. And they're called sons of thunder. And this is what you might call an undesigned coincidence because uh, we don't get any explanation in Mark. Why are they called sons of thunder? And and they're not just called this, right? Jesus calls them this. Just like Jesus calls Peter Cephas, uh, or calls um, Simon Cephas and Peter, which means rock. Jesus calls them, he calls them Boanerges, That's, he gave them that name. Um, well, this might come from uh, an incident we read about in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 verse 51 through, or 52 through 54, it says this, And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But, the Samaritans, they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. This animosity between the Samaritans and, the, and Jerusalem in particular. They're like, what? You want to go to Jerusalem? Then you can't even come here. You can't, we're not going to help you. How did his disciples respond? When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Now, this is not unheard of. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Or Elijah, right? When they were like, go up, you bald head, and they were ultimately rejecting God and his prophet and they are thinking like this is what is happening like should we call down fire to consume them? And Jesus says to them like you do not know what spirit you are of. There is a time for judgment but it is not like every time is judgment because we all just be dead. Like right away. Like there would not be anything going on anymore, it would be rather unfortunate. So what is interesting about this though is that this nickname, Sons of Thunder, it is, I mean does God have a sense of humor? Well, Jesus seems to use it as perhaps a way of reminding them of their rash nature. Hey, sons of thunder, how you doing? How you doing? It's like, it's like when someone really blows it and you start calling him Big Mouth after that. You know, like, oh, hey, Big Mouth, got something to share? You know, I don't, I don't know that he used it that sarcastically. But it does seem to have an element of that in it. And, um, and I think that it perhaps was a humbling and a training thing for them and they needed to be humbled and needed to be trained in it. What's interesting is this. James, after saying, shall we call down fire with his brother John? He is the first apostle to lay his life down for Jesus in Acts chapter 12. Killed by Herod with a sword. Probably one of Herod's people, you know, but Herod, under Herod's authority. And he's one of the first ones to lay his life down. He's the guy, shall we kill them? And now he lays his life down before any of the others even do. He gives his life for Christ. John, John becomes like the apostle of love. Did you know that's one of his, his nicknames we give him, right? The apostle of love. I mean, he, as you read through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as you read John and you just get this, this sensitivity and the kindness of the man coming across in his content. He's extreme, but he's incredibly loving and kind, and he's like how can you say you love God if you don't love your fellow man, if you don't love those who've been born of him, other believers. And so my thought is this, is here they get this name because of this rash nature, and just the Lord flips it, and the thing that would have been their area of weakness became in an area of strength because of the example of Jesus, because of the rebuke of Jesus in their life, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the point here is God changes us, and our tendencies need to be curbed because I have tendencies that are self-destructive and will hurt the work of the ministry but if I realize it and I'm brought if it's drawn uh, I'm drawn uh, my attention is drawn to that that's the word I'm trying to find attention it's a complicated word Uh, but if my attention is drawn to this thing and I actually focus on it and I go okay well in all honesty and complete soberness what are my areas of failing where are the areas where I will mess up right is it going to be your pride your laziness your bitterness, your, your tendency to complain? Is it going to be um, your, your constant desire to get out of dodge? I want to start it, but I never want to follow through. Serving in a ministry, I just want to leave. I always want to leave, leave, leave. Whatever the thing is, once you realize it's there, you can then yield it to the Holy Spirit and see God perhaps do a wonderful work and see, your, see yourself become strong where you were weak and then you can help others who've gone through that kind of same stuff. But the point is, I think God changes us. Um, These guys are the three, Peter, James, John. We call them the three also. Um, Jesus chose them and he chose weak vessels and he chose weak vessels on purpose. And there's, of course, a lesson for us in that. In fact, I love 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It puts it this way. The English is a little bit rough to understand, but we need to read it as it is uh, to get it. We have this treasure, it says, in earthen vessels. That's our bodies. So in my body, I have this wonderful treasure. And what is it? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The ability to serve God will be all his ability and it's a treasure and it's related to this vessel I'm in. Why? Why? What is he saying? He's saying you're weak, you have flaws, you have issues, you have shortcomings and those things, those things are treasured to you because it means that you won't do anything but by God's power. So you're allowing God to use you and God to fill you and so um, that's a treasure and not something to be griped about oh, I'm not good enough at this, I don't have this, da, 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 but instead realize that you can delight in your weakness because in that you're leaning upon the Lord and in that you are strong. All right, let's look at Andrew. Um, Andrew's Peter's brother and that's that's all you get. <laughs> he brought Peter to Jesus, right? Andrew, he's Peter's brother. Um, he, he does other, some other things, interesting things in the text. You can actually follow up more information about him, but there's not nearly as much as there is about, say, James, John or, or, uh, or Peter. And what I notice about Andrew is I would imagine that there'd be a tempt, temptation to be competitive with Peter his brother. And the disciples had this problem a lot actually. We read about this how they were arguing over which one of them was the greatest. I mean you think about the disciples and we respect these guys. And you think about them at that younger age and they're still learning and growing and they don't quite get it yet. And they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It's like a group of pastors get together and somehow it gets brought up, like, "Who's the best teacher here?" What do you guys think? What do you guys, guys think the best teacher here? And they're all like me, but I'm not saying it. I want someone else to say it, you know. And um, <laughs> and they're arguing about who's greatest. And so I think this kind of thing comes naturally. Um, I don't actually see it in Andrew in particular, except in a general sense that the 12 had an issue with this, because Jesus corrects it in the 12. I'm not highlighting Andrew here. But Andrew and Peter's relationship makes me think of this possible competition thing. Competition is terrible for ministry, and it's terrible for relationships in general. Um, You find that you just can't really, you can't really connect with people if you're competing with them. Uh, It just doesn't work. And, and here is one I've, I did for years, especially growing up. I was just like, I felt like I was competing with every guy. And it hurt my relationships with guys. It really did. And at some point, I just was like, I do not care. Um, I just want to compliment. <laughs> I want to come together and, and love one another and hold hands in the Lord. And if this guy's better than me at something, then that is a wonderful thing. And why am I so insecure that that would bother me? Um, so it should be about God's glory, not mine. Therefore, I won't compete. If it's not about me, then why am I upset that that guy or that girl has some talent or skill that I don't have? Why would that bother me? If it's not about my glory, it wouldn't bother me. I'd be grateful for it. I'd be thankful. I wouldn't be envious. I'd be thankful. So I just want to encourage that and it came to me just thinking about Andrew and Peter. Uh, Number five, Philip. Philip. Um, Philip's relationship uh, is that he immediately tells Nathaniel or Bartholomew. He immediately tells him about Jesus and brings him to Jesus. Um, in John's gospel, he also helps Greeks come and meet Jesus, kind of outsiders that he's going to help them come me- and meet Jesus. And so if Philip, uh, similar to the Philip in Acts, different Philip, but that Philip was called the Philip the Evangelist. He's telling people and Philip seems to have that connection and probably all the apostles were, were geared that way in some sense. And so maybe that's that you, you tell everyone. Um, you tell everyone about the Lord and you just you're constantly actively going for it where others are just holding their tongue. Uh, Bartholomew, um, also known as Nathaniel, I believe. um, He was interesting because he's pessimistic about Jesus. But when you read about him in in John chapter 1, he's like, anything good come out of Nazareth? But Philip's response is, well, come and see. Come and see. And Nathaniel was open-minded enough to actually go and evaluate Jesus. Like not in a, I'm going to judge you, but no, like go and meet him and take a look out. Well, maybe something good can come. I'll be, I'm open to it. So he's kind of the guy who thought Christianity sounded silly at first, but then he went and found out. And discovered it was the truth. And what's amazing about him is when he does see who Jesus is, he immediately he's he's like, you're the holy one, like you're you're the one. He, he doesn't even go, oh, that's something interesting to think about. He actually responds by just having total faith uh, in Jesus, which is pretty neat. Um, I, I hope for this kind of person to find uh, my online content. <laughs> you know, like if they're just open-minded, they'll think about it and not, I'm just watching to something to criticize. That's all I need is just, just one little moment to criticize and then you're done, yeah. Okay. Well, good luck. <laughs> You're always going to find something. But, uh, but yeah, but he's open-minded and he's actually that rare person. In Matthew, um, I'm sorry, with the case of Matthew, in the number seven disciple on this list, uh, Matthew or Levi, he's the tax collector. And what's interesting about him is he, he's the one, first one we've encountered here who wrote one of the Gospels. Matthew, who actually recorded one of the Gospels. And these other guys, their, their work was mostly all done in the first century for the first century most of the twelve. We don't read a whole lot about them. They're doing it right then and there. They're having the impact and, it's ta- and, the, and then it's trickle down, having impacts for generations and generations afterwards. But Matthew, he writes something down and this is good for some of us to remember that we ought to be maybe writing a book for the Lord, doing something that we might leave a legacy, leave an impact to have, uh, leave something to have an impact in future time. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Number eight, Thomas who is also called the twin. In John eleven sixteen 16, we read about that. he's Tom- he's Thomas, who is also called the twin. Now, I got to tell you, this has led to some real interesting, you know, suppositions about Thomas. Thomas is called the twin. So, some say, well, Jesus had a twin. And it is hinted at right there. It was not too long ago. Last year, I heard an, an atheist present this as a possible solution to the resurrection problem. Maybe Jesus really died, and then t- his twin showed up, and that is what tricked people. Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, so they say, Thomas was Jesus' twin. He tricked them into thinking he was Jesus, even though it was known that he was the twin. Like, wait, wait a minute. The guy, how does he trick them when his, na- his nickname is the twin? Let's just think about this for a second. Like, how does this work? The empty tomb, then, was a lucky coincidence. In fact, I've heard one theory that the empty tomb, there was an earthquake and a crack opened in the tomb and Jesus' body fell in the crack. Because you still have a body of Jesus to deal with, right? Even if you have a twin, you got a body. So he fell in the crack and then his body disappeared and then the twins there and then that solves the problem. I'm like, <laughs> methinks thou doth protest too much. Is that how it goes? Um, yeah, I don't think so. Um, another guy says that there was some sort of special chemicals, you know, released in the earthquake and it dissolved Jesus's body super fast. I'll be like, that's, sounds like the plot of the next Marvel film. Um, Like anything that's if you're going to appeal to miracles just say he rose. That's all I'm saying Because <laughs> that's the most obvious explanation Also, how did Thomas the twin convert James the brother of Jesus? No, <laughs> no thought on that one, huh? Um, or how about we just ignore the fact that Jesus's brothers are talked about in um, multiple verses and they didn't follow him and they thought he was crazy So, obviously, he's not one of the twelve. James wasn't even converted until after Christ died and rose, and so they thought he was crazy. Finally, and here's probably the, the strongest reason against identifying Thomas as Jesus's twin. Thomas is an Aramaic name that means twin. So, when John says Thomas, also called the twin, what he says is Thomas, which is his in, in, uh, you know, in one language referring to Thomas, and then he says, also called Didymus, right? Which means twin. Anyways, yeah. Finally, finally, we read about Thomas, who was the guy that was doubting Jesus rose, who was convinced by an appearance of Jesus, and said, my Lord and my God, Anyways, but uh, but you see this stuff flow and because when well, you hear it and you haven't thought it through and it stumbles you And then you don't know how to respond and so some people can get a lot of traction with ridiculous statements to be honest um, So number nine we have James the son of Alphaeus This is perhaps the same as James the younger we read about in Mark 15 verse 40 and that's about all we know about that guy He's also called James the less Right, James the less. Well, he was, this was not considered insulting to them. It was just like oh, yeah other James, You know, it's like, that's kind of how it came out. Well, we don't know too much about him. Um, th- except, excuse me, I should say this. We know everything about him that it says about the 12. So, anytime the 12 do something, he's doing it too. We just don't know unique details about him. I should say that. Um, also, number 10, Thaddeus or Judas. Um, we also don't know too much by comparison about him. But again, anytime the 12 are mentioned, he's doing it. Learning from Jesus, preaching in the upper room, establishing the church, going two by two. Um, Their impact, though, is primarily felt, not read, as we see what they did in history. And imagine the ripple effect of how many people were impacted by just one week in the apostle's life after the resurrection. The ripple effect. Like, just imagine it. And imagine for a second that if your life was not even about your life, It was about the ripple effect of 100 years from now. Or if the Lord tarries 500 years from now. What if it's just about that? And it just changes the way you see your life, doesn't it? And you're not looking for fruit the same way. You're looking for faithfulness, which is, I think, the point. I need to be faithful. And he provides the fruit. I abide and then I bear much fruit. It's a natural outgrowth of abiding in Christ. And that's an important thing to learn. Faithfulness, not performance, is the thing. So don't feel less significant if you're less known. Um, truly spiritual people aren't going ish- to struggle with that. But you know, we're us. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, I think that truly spiritual people though, what we should do is we should elevate the importance of everything we do. And not just think, well, if I have a, a big impact that I can see, then then it was really important. But we should elevate the importance of everything we do, from like reading your kid a book before they go to bed at night, to just making sure to be kind and gracious to your spouse. To just being sure to like be in the Word on a regular basis, not out of some anxiety, but out of just love for the Lord and commitment to Him. that we should elevate the importance of everything. Like Colossians says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, and your ripple effect will have the result God wants it to have. You have no idea, but stop, so stop trying to figure it out. Just don't, please. You're like me walking out into a garden and going, I wonder what fruit that plant will have as I look at it. And someone's like, no, that's just a stick, Mike. It's not a plant. You know, like, I'm not very good at evaluating that. And in the same sense, you're probably not very good at evaluating the fruit, the future fruit of your current actions. So focus on faithfulness. Then we have Simon the Zealot. Um, Simon the Zealot was probably part of a radical group called Zealots. The Zealots, possibly part of this group. Um, These were an actual group that would do anything they could to overthrow Rome, even like guerrilla warfare tactics and stuff like that. Think about this for a second. Simon the zealot, who if potentially was doing these kinds of things or at least inclined to them, here he is, part of a group with Matthew the tax collector who was working for Rome. And Jesus brings them together to serve him. I just love that. I love that. Um, God brings us together. He brings us together. Gets rid of our prejudices, gets rid of our biases, gets rid of our racism, gets rid of our... We're so dug in on our political views, which maybe we're right about them. But he allows us to then find unity in Christ still in the midst of a lot of other things that might have divided us. And that's a beautiful thing. Then we have Judas Iscariot. And that's where it goes sideways. (laughs) Judas Iscariot. Iscariot uh, means from Kerioth, which is a, a city he was likely from. But the word itself can also mean knife man. That's interesting, isn't it? It can also mean knife man. So it could be, in some sense, a reference to him, stab Jesus in the back, so to speak. Um, that's a possibility. Um, or it could just be that God just knew what he was doing because he's the king of the universe. And so he's from, a, you know, he's from Kerioth, and he's the knife man, so to speak. Uh, we find out about Judas that even during this time, he was stealing from the money bags. He was stealing from the, the, um, uh, from the donations that were coming to support Jesus's ministry. We also know he betrayed Christ. And here's the big thing. We know it was all in God's plan. What we get from this passage is Jesus chose this guy, Judas, on purpose, knowing he would betray Jesus. And my application for us is this. We often hear about people who fall away from Christ. And we hear about it especially if they're big name celebrity types. Recently, we've been hearing this. God knew all along that they were going to Some of them, not just backslide, not just in sin and embarrass themselves, but actually, you know, after they decide I'm not a Christian anymore, now I'm going to go out preaching against God, preaching against Christ, trying to destroy the thing which I once tried to build up. God knew it all along. He's not surprised. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry about it in that sense, in that way. Recognize the sovereignty of God. God used Judas for his glory. And the things that came out of his backstabbing of Jesus ended up leading towards the salvation of the world. And so I just, just trust God's sovereignty. He's going to use it for his ultimate glory. And like this is what God's sovereignty does to my heart, right? Lord, you're in control. And you have a plan. It's a good thing. So our application uh, in closing is we just want to be faithful. You don't know the impact of your ministry. God sees all of history and he knows exactly what he's doing and your, your task is to serve him where you're at and not think about the glory of your position or the glory of your legacy or in that sense, it's about how you can serve Christ and have an impact for him and for his name, thinking first of the Lord, second of the people and not really that much of the crowd. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your holy word and for the lessons that we're learning as we study through Mark. Um, we just pray we would continue to have insight and understanding I pray that we pray that as I prepare, I would have uh, that wonderful leading of your Holy Spirit in my preparation as well as the uh, ability to find and prepare the content well. We ask God that you be glorified in our lives and that you'd help us now to take a, a step back from everything and to remember the sovereignty of God, to remember that you, you really are in control in our lives. And that where we're at right now, everything we do matters if we do it in Christ and for Christ. And that we're just called to be faithful, to trust in your sovereignty, and to let you bring the fruit. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to have that perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.